Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. Up to the age of 11, I wanted to be a priest, right? Uh, and then I got to senior school, I went to a comprehensive hall, all those said there, I don't want to be a priest anymore. There's girls and stuff, what's that all about? <laughs> yeah. So uh, dismissed the priesthood completely. I bought a job lot of postcards, right? And I'd filled it all in for them. All they had to do was stick a stamp on it and vote for me. And of course I won. Oh my God, you yeah. almost rigged the vote, Joe. Oh, completely rigged the vote, yeah. Unbeknownst to me, the glue part in my bag has completely uh, spilled out with the bag open, but I didn't know this. And I sat in my dressing room for five hours, glue sniffing, right? I didn't know I was doing it, right? To say I was high, if someone came with a match, it would have gone up like Oppenheimer if they'd come in, right? I kid you not, I sat there for five hours, I was off my tits. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a comedian, actor and author who began his career as a runner-up on a TV talent show, New Faces, only to go on 17 years later to win arguably Britain's biggest popularity contest when he left the jungle as the king of the jungle in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Now 62, he's a father of five grown-ups, a panto veteran, a mature student and a gym-loving marathon runner who's about to mark his 40 years in the business with a new tour. It's called The New Normal, 40 Years of CAC. 
Mm-hmm. Born and raised in Essex, he worked as a welder, a builder, and also at Smithfield's meat markets, where he'd lug animal carcasses around, all in the name of a day's work, before finding work on a holiday camp, running the entertainments there. That led to him entering the BGT of its day, New Faces, a TV talent show, which he didn't win, but he made enough of a mark to start him out on a path to a career in comedy. In 2004, he won The Jungle and has appeared on stage in The Producers in Monty Python's Spamalot, as well as doing voiceovers for films like Horton Hears a Who and Garfield 2. So let's dial him in, shall we? It's Joe Pasquale. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Do you want me to tell you what's been going on the weekend? When you say, how are you? Yeah. It's a long story. Shall I tell you? I'm okay. I want I want right? it all, Joe. Don't spare the detail. Okay. I nearly died the weekend. I nearly killed myself. I don't just meet all people and nearly kill myself. I, I nearly died. I really did. What? I was that close. That close, right? Because I started the tour on Friday. I was in Epsom on Friday. And then from Epsom to Skegness. I don't know if you've ever been to Skegness, the land of the Midnight Sausage. You ever been there? No, you get you get saveloids at all time of night. It's amazing, right? Anyway, in the act, in the act, I have a great big pair of of moose antlers like that, right? Great big, and they're huge things, right? And I'm going to tell you an interesting fact about that sort in, in a little while about deers and what have you. But anyway, huge antlers like that, and they stick got like these big prongs sticking up. And the gag is, I just put them on my head and go, I'll put too much moose on me hair. That's the gag, right? Which is fair enough. And everybody laughs at it. But at the end of the act, the curtains came down and all my props are sprued all over the stage, right? And it's a bit, it's, they bring the lights down, obviously, after the show. And I'm starting to put all my props away. And I literally trip over, I trip over my moose head, right? And it was in slow motion. My moose head's on the floor, like, all sticking up, right? And I was just like, I'm starting to go down on, and I'm like that, I'm falling on the moose head. Now, these are like this. I was going to impale myself on eight moose points, like this, right? Right in my belly. <laughs> I was going to die. Seriously, Kate, I was going to die. Don't I, because I, I know I'm 62, but I am quite nimble for a bloke of my age, right? So I had one leg on you the were... ground, the other one's, the other one's hanging out there, out the, to the right hand side somewhere, right? And I managed to push myself, right? Push myself over, got them, well, my torso went over the top of the moose heads. And as I also went, it was like Tom Cruise in the new Mission Impossible film, right? I actually twisted round onto my back as well, all in a split second. It was all in slow motion. And as I came down on the moose head, right, on its, on its, Prongs, it only got me in the back of the leg, right? So I was like, oh, it really hurt, but I thought, that's okay. Anyway, I went to see my, my tour manager who was doing the sound for me. I went, Lee, I think I've hurt my leg. Will you have a look at it? So he went, yeah, well, what have you done? So I said, I've just fell over and landed on my moose head. And he really laughed. And I pulled my trousers down to show him. And he, just, he nearly went, he went, why? He nearly fainted. He went, oh, my God, you, you need a medic. So I went, well, what's the matter? Because, you know, it's like when you hurt yourself. It don't really hurt. It hurts a little bit. And so he went, you need well, a medic. Well, you're in shock. Anyway, Oh, well, I must have been. So then, then this medic comes round the back and he goes, uh, what have you done? So uh, I hurt myself on my moose head. And he went, what do you mean? So I, I think I don't know what I've done. Have a look. So I put my trousers down again and he went, oh, my God, you need to go to hospital. So I went, why? He said, I can't do that. He said, you, you're going you to have to get it sewn up. So I said, what is it? He said, well, it's a great big hole in your leg. So I went, what do you mean a great big hole? He said, honestly, it's a big hole in your leg. So I said, how big? He went, too okay. big for me. 
So anyway, so uh, he said, you've got to go to uh, A&E. Now, this is in Skegness at 11 o'clock at night. I said, there's no way I'm going to A&E at Skegness at 11 o'clock. I'll be there for 48 hours. It'll be full of every bottled, drunk person in the world there. So he said, where have you got to go to? I said, I'm going to Grimsby tonight. He said, go to Grimsby A&E. I said, Grimsby, that's even worse than, uh, than Skegness. I'll be there for three weeks. So he said, well, you've got to go. So anyway, I didn't, but he, he patched it up. In the morning, I was in Bridlington. So I went to an A&E in Bridlington that is only open eight hours a day. I thought that would be handy. So I'd go there at 8 o'clock, no, 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was no one there. It was amazing. Anyway, they sewed me up, and that was it. That's the end of the story, basically. But I had to have seven stitches. I've got a great big hole like that in the back of my leg. I actually impaled my leg. But if I'd gone straight down on my belly, I'd be you dead. You almost now. impaled would... yourself yeah, on, on a, a moose, moose head. head. On a dead moose head, as that. Like some sort of martial artist. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a bit a dead martial artist. And did you know, uh, this, this, this is true, this is, right? Um, apparently deers, you know when deers lose their, their, their antlers every every summer, at the end of the autumn, right? they grow them in the spring and then they, they fall off, don't they? You know about this, don't you? Yeah. Right? Well, like, why is it, because why do you never see all these antlers on the floor then, right? And I found out, did you know what they do? They eat them straight away. They eat their own... Antlers. They eat their own antlers, and that's where they get the that's where they get the calcium back from to grow them again the next year. Did you know that? It's like eating their own toenails. <laughs> Don't tell me you've not done that. No, I've not. <laughs> we haven't even started yeah, the interview they yet. They eat their we, own antlers. Yeah. Look at where we are. We've not even had a glass of wine yet. Do you know? I only had Chris Packham on two weeks ago, and he didn't give me nuggets like that. No, well, see, Chris is just a chancer, you see. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, how are you, though, Joe? Like, how's the hole? How's your... Um, the hole, your yeah, it's good. It's, it's, it's a bit sore. It's, it's right in the back of my leg, just below my knee. So it's difficult to sit down anywhere. You're in that position. Wherever you sit, you're going to be on it. So it's okay, though. Yeah, it's fine, thank you. But apart from that, I'm oh, very, and, very good. And you're only just starting out on this tour, Joe. I mean... No, I know, yeah, yeah. You Got might have to rethink to some yet. of your props. Yeah, I know. I've got to put some corks on the top of my moose head. Can you qualify what CAC means, please? I'm yeah, dying to a, know. Yeah, CAC. Well, it's, it's, um, it's a childish name for poo, really. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually got heckled once in Wales. Uh, it was more than a heckle. I was in, in Bargoid in Gwent, and there was a bloke at the bar uh, on crutches, and he actually said to me, I'd rather fall over than listen to this. Cack, but he didn't say cack, and he threw his crutches at me. You can and say fell shit over. on this show; it's okay. Oh, can you? Yeah, he said I'd rather fall yeah. over than listen to this shit, and he threw his crutches at me and fell over. <laughs> can you believe that? That's a heckle. That is. That's that's a mic drop. It is, isn't it? It's, it really is. Isn't it? <laughs> he elevated your your joke, and and he elevated it's his own heckle, it. and he actually yep. stole the moment. He did completely. Well, actually, got his crutches and run off. I didn't stay throwing things like that. I don't stay out there if I can help it. We haven't had a glass of wine. Look where we are. So, forty years of cack. Is this is this like um you looking back on your forty years in the business? Because the blurb on the website tickled me, Joe. You, it says that you can expect things like this. You asking if a nudist spilt beetroot soup in his lap, would he have a stain on his character? And yeah, why don't chicken breasts have nipples? Which is such a good question. It really is. Why don't they? I don't understand it. Anyway, yeah, it's basically it's two hours of that, um, really. And I've got because I've been doing it for so long, I've got a garage full of props uh, which I buy off the internet, uh, boot sales. Well, anybody's throwing it out, I'll, I'll find a use for that. And uh, and I put it in the act. So all I've done is 
is put a load of stuff in the back of the car and put it on the road for a few weeks. And I'm loving it because I was uh, during that um, uh, COVID, you know, those COVID years, I want to call it that, for two years. I, I live on my own, so because uh, I wasn't doing it, doing working as such, really, a couple of bits of telly, but there was no live work for me anywhere. Not for not for anyone in the business, as you know. Um, I was just a bloke in his pants walking about the house. And I thought, well, what, what, who am I? What, what, that's what defines me. If I can't go out and nearly kill myself on a Saturday night at Skegness, what, what, is, my, what is my job on this world, right? And uh, after two years, Lee Mead thrown me up. You know, know Lee Mead, right, the singer? Yeah. He phoned me up. He said, I'm doing a job at the London Palladium. Uh, he said, I'm doing a new concert. He said, but it's my first job back, and I really would like somebody with me just to support me, just to do a little bit of a warm-up. Would you come and do it? And I immediately said, yes, I've not done it for two years either. And when I put the phone down, my bottle went completely. I thought, oh, my God, I've not done it for two years. What happens if I don't remember? Not that I couldn't remember what I used to do, because that changes on a nightly basis anyway. But what happens if I couldn't remember who I was that, that did that, that part of me that did that? Because, you know, part of my personality takes over to do that. Because, uh, you know, at home, I'm not that bloke. But when you get on stage, that bloke takes over. And I thought, if, that, if I have to do it myself, it ain't going to work if I'm doing it. And then after, after the very last second, it was like my very first gig. And then when I went out there, I thought, if this is the last gig I ever do, at least it's a London Palladium. Anyway, I went out there and it, it was like, it, it just put in a coat on it. And it literally came back. It was like muscle memory. And it hadn't, because I hadn't used that part of my personality, I really didn't know if it was going to turn up. But it did. And it's quite extraordinary, really. I don't even remember what your question was now. I, I just go off on one, don't I? No, it's, and do you know what, Joe? You're... Not the not the first guest to sit here and talk about um, kind of like the the hangover of locking down on your own because everybody had very different experiences. But I think for a lot of people that are on their own, I yeah. think only now are they starting to realise how it has impacted them um, and and the questions that it raised. Because you know, just living with you and yourself, you know, nobody chooses to do that. We don't choose to isolate. Certainly not people that buzz off of working in front of an audience. Yeah, yeah, completely. And now I'm back doing it. I was so excited on Friday night. I thought this is going to... And I was so nervous as well on Friday night because the first proper gig... I've done a few holiday games, that sort of stuff, but the first time I've done a proper tour like this in six years because previously to uh, COVID, I was on the road doing a play. I was doing Some Others Do Have Them for a few years and that got interrupted by COVID. So after six years of not doing stand-up, it's quite a, 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 a leap of faith again. And to say I'm loving it is an understatement. It's a, it's a really weird thing to stand up um, because I think not just what just stand up, but any play, any musical, anybody goes to see, I think what people are looking for when they go for live entertainment, even a movie, is is to be free of concern. For the amount of time they're putting their attention into you or to the film or to the play or the musical, their life is full of concerns. Everybody's, yours is, mine is. We all have these concerns. And if you can get people to forget about those concerns for a couple of hours, then you've done your job. And also, by the same, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship because I also get to forget about my concerns in that two hours as well. And it's a way of communicating. I don't really know what it is I'm communicating, but what it is, is you're all on the same level and everybody's laughing at the same thing. And I laugh at, at my, stupid, my own stupidity all the time on stage. And it's like putting a 13-year-old up there. There's nothing clever. There's no social commentary. There's no political bias. It's just a 13-year-old talking about farts, willies and bums and chicken breasts. That's all it is for two hours. Denouncing their lack of nipples. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say I really enjoyed talking to you? This is great. Good. Well, I'm glad because I've put some thought behind the three questions that I've drafted for you. 
Job. So let's rewind and jump in with question one, if you don't mind. Yes. I wanted to chart some of the phone calls or conversations that changed everything for you. And I wanted to kick off with the call that you got while you were working at the holiday camp uh, at the very beginning of your career as a performer. It was a call from ITV asking yes. you to come and take part in New Faces. Yes. Well, what happened was I was calling bingo and referee in wrestling uh, at the holiday camp. <laughs> and oh, no, I really was. And these wrestlers, right, they would come in. Would the holiday makers wrestle, Joe? No, no, it wasn't. No, no, that was just um, the professional wrestlers, right? But they weren't the ones I could tell you. These, yeah. I just thought, well, it's a bit rough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, gone down here a lot. I mean, I've been years. to some places, but never seen <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> these are the £7.50 ones in the sun. That's what it is. So what happened yeah. was, right, these wrestlers would come down and they'd do like 40 camps over the week. So they'd do like four or five camps a day, these, these wrestlers, right? And they'd get to us on a Thursday or a Friday. Bear in mind, they've been on the road since Sunday, doing four or five shows a day. And they'd put up the ring, do three bouts, put the ring down and go to another camp down the road. And by the time they got to us, they've still got the same leotards on that they've had all week, right? And to say they were minging would be an understatement. I was gipping all the time. And they'd put me in headlocks. I was refereeing. They'd put me in their headlocks and they'd stick me in the, between the, my head between their legs in their gusset. And it was, honestly, I was gipping every day. I couldn't eat before it because I'd just be throwing up. And all the old ladies would absolutely love it, but I hated it. I hated the wrestling. Anyway, um, we forget, I got... don't we? Wrestling was a big thing, like Big Daddy. Big oh, Daddy yeah. was like a massive yeah. star when we oh, were growing was... up. Jeff Capes, world's strongest man. Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it was all that. And, and Tarantula, Uncle Tarantula as well. Great big hairy bloke. And so I would have to do that, and I'd also have to do um, uh, like a, a, a swimming guard, that sort of stuff. You'd be a lifeguard, but you didn't have to be able to swim a lot because it was only three foot six. As long as you were taller than three foot six, you could be the swimming guard, and I was. So, and I remember one day we had a bloke, bloke turned up on holiday. He's only got one eye, right? And uh, he's got a glass eye in, and so he's walking along the bloke beside the swimming pool, and it says no diving because only three foot six. But it was on his blind side, as it were. He didn't see it, and he dives in the water, bangs his head, pops his head up. And he's lost his glass eyes, popped out. And everybody in the swimming pool is going, oh, he's lost an eye. And they're all screaming and all getting out of the water like it was the film Jaws. Do you know, in that bit in the Jaws, all the, the sharks here. And he, he was all right because it was a glass one. He didn't really feel it, he just banged his head a bit. And he's trying to come down, it's all right, it's my glass eye. So they're all out, it's just him in the water. And he goes to me, Joe, can you help me find my glass eye? So I said, well, where is it? It's what's in here somewhere. I said, what colour is it? And he went the same as this one and pointed it to his real eye, which is blue, which is the same colour as the bottom of the swimming pool. So I'm in there with a one-eyed bloke looking for a glass eye, the same colour as the bottom of the swimming pool. It was like a needle in a haystack. <laughs> anyway, every now and then I'd, I'd kick it with my toes. I went, I found it. Oh, I kicked it. And then I'd have to, you couldn't see it. You'd go under, you couldn't see it because it's the same colour, disguised. Anyway, eventually I found it with my toes and I, I, get, I wedged it. I wedged it in between my big toe and my long toe and I lifted my foot out of the water Right, and he went. I went. Is that it? And I, if he'd said no, right, it would have been a nightmare. He went. Yeah, that's the one. So I thought it must be. Anyway, picked it out of my toes, and he. I kid you not. He went. He sucked it for a minute, and then popped it back in his eye. I thought he's going to get Veruca in a week on his eyeball. Anyway, he didn't. But that was it. So going to your original question. So these are the jobs I was doing, and then they a load of people bet me that. Um, bet, why don't you go for an audition for New Faces? I said yeah, but I don't do anything. I just find glass eyes and call bingo and referee the wrestling, and my head stuck between somebody gusset what am I going to do and they went oh you'll find something anyway I went to the audition I only had one joke 
Uh, and the joke was I had a tiny little guitar out of a great big guitar case and there was three people there. Richard Holloway, you know Richard Holloway, right? Um, the I producer. do know Richard Holloway. Yeah, yeah. I knew you know. Richard was the producer on it, right? And he's sitting in front of yeah, me. Yeah, well, Richard was in charge of X Factor when That's I worked right, on that. That's right, he was. Yes. I know he was, yeah. That's Richard, yeah. yep, yep, uh, a very classy bloke, look very, you know, very like that, right, and there's me, Divi Boy, in front of him, saying I've got a lovely Spanish folk song, uh, and, I get, and I get my little guitar out, uh, out of a big case, and they laughed a little bit, and, I said, and he said, what's the song called? I said, it's called A Moosh Sadu A Gee, right, and then this bloke on the piano, he said, would you like any music? So I went, well, if you think of anything, and he started playing all this flamenco stuff, and I stopped him, and I went, what are you doing? I said, you've already got the job, I'm the one auditioning. And uh, he said, well, just sing the song. And I went, and Moosh is a doogie in the window. And I, sh- and I smashed the guitar up, right? And I walked off. And so they're really laughing at me. And I just went back to calling the bingo. I went, thank you. Went back to calling the bingo. And then about a week later, I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was Naomi Rose, I think her name was, who was the casting agent. Um, the the uh, lady receptionist at the holiday camp said, uh, Joe, we've got a call for you. So I said, who is it? So I don't know. Somebody from, um, a, uh, where was it? Uh, was it ATV, I think it was at the time. Uh, no, Central Television it was uh, in Birmingham. Mm. So I said, okay. So I answered it and she went, hello, is that Joe? So I said, yeah. Um, hi, uh, um, uh, she's uh, Naomi Rose from uh, uh, from ITV. She said, uh, we need to speak to your manager. So I said, oh, he's very busy at the moment. So I said, oh, okay, well, what, what's he doing? She said, well, he's looking after everybody. So I said, what do you mean? What's his name? So I said, Mr. Lee. So I said, well, who does he look after? So he looks after everybody. So she went, what do you mean everybody? Well, everybody here. So said, well, who's everybody here? So there's about 380 people here. She went, well, who does he manage? <laughs> well, he manages them all. I don't understand what you're asking me. So she said, well, what acts does he manage? Does he manage? No, he's not. he doesn't manage acts. He manages the kitchen. He manages the bars. He manages the swimming pools. He manages, he does the whisk drive. He does everything. Says so I'm slightly confused who he is. So his name's Mr. Lee. So I said, well, Mr. Lee who? So I said, no, it's not his first name. His name is Mr. Lee. So what's his first? And I didn't really. I said, what's Mr. Lee's first name? And he went Francis. Well, his name's Francis Lee. And he went, what the footballer? So I said, no, he's not a footballer because apparently there was a footballer called Francis Lee. I went, he's a manager, general manager of the holiday camp. And they went holiday camp. What holiday camp? And I said, well, it's Warner's. Whereabouts is? I said, lower stuff. And this went on for ages. And it was like it was like a sitcom. And in the end, they went, well, basically, we, we, we don't understand what you're talking about here. We'd like to offer you the show. So I said, what show's that? And I'd forgotten about it. And they went, um, what well, new faces? <laughs> so I said, well, I haven't got an act. And they went, doesn't matter. Just do what you did. And, uh, and that was like nearly 40 years ago now. And I still, and yeah. I busked it on the night. I won the heat. Um, and then I come second in the final. But what I did when I was at the holiday camp, right, because uh, it was pre-recorded, and in those days, it wasn't like get your phone and you know dial it in and easy thing. It was all done no, by postcards. No, it was just judges, right? It was judges, but also it was postcards as well, right? You had to, you had postcards. To send, the general public had to send a postcard in. Can you? That's how long ago it was, right? Send a postcard. So what I did, it was on for a bit. I'd recorded. Can you imagine it. now, Joe? Somebody being bothered oh, to do to that? Send a po- yeah, but there was only three channels then. I think. Do you know what I mean? Uh, oh, no, no but like the, the idea of like you know people sometimes some people can't be bothered to vote on their phone that's in their hand, let alone yeah. go buy a postcard, fill it out, buy a stamp, yeah. walk to yeah. the post box, post it. I mean, yeah. that's an yeah. investment. Yeah, but guess what I did though? Guess what I did? This was pro- this is like four months before it actually been aired, so there was like eighteen weeks, sixteen weeks then of of all these people, all these punters going on holiday. 
So I went down to a warehouse. I bought a job lot of postcards, right? So that at the end, of the, and I gave them all that to everybody at the holiday camp, and I filled it all in for them. All they had to do was stick a stamp on it and vote for me. That was it. I put my name on it. I put the address. All I didn't do was buy the stamps. I said, if you just, you know, if you enjoyed your holiday week this week, if you enjoyed the wrestling, just uh, stick that in the post for us at the end of the week. And of course, I won. I won the heat, and I straight through the final. Oh my God! You yeah. almost rigged the vote, Joe. Oh, completely rigged the vote. Yeah, if you couldn't, you you can't rig a vote on the phone lines, but you can if you do it in the old times, you know, with postcards. And that's How much did, did you spend on those postcards, do you reckon? Oh, I spent a good couple of hundred quid on them in the end, yeah, because it was hundreds you, and hundreds. But that, hundreds that's yeah. an investment in yourself, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it was, totally, yeah. They didn't have a clue what I was talking about. They just always oh, been a nice boy. They'd send it off for them. They'd stick a, post, a, a stamp on it, and it went. Yeah, it was amazing. So if you experience. think about that, right? That two hundred quid probably changed everything for you. I changed the changed my life completely. Yeah, and I had no idea, you know, because and even then, you know, nearly forty years later, I am still busking it. You know, I've been busking it all my life, and I don't take it too seriously, though, Kate. I, I love the business, but it's just a job. But I do like making people laugh. That's the that's been my day job for forty years. But that's serious business because, you know, you talked earlier about um, people, you know, you've done your job when somebody can literally leave their worries at the door and lose themselves for a couple of hours. In some ways, that's a medicine, isn't it? Oh, completely. It really is because it's more medicine for me more than anything else. Because I think most comics, before they become, if you if you want to be a comic and before you actually go professional, I think all you are is an annoying little sod. Because all you're trying to do is be funny, and everybody's going, "Oh, he's so annoying." Whether you're down the pub at work, I was annoying. All the jobs I had beforehand, I was just annoying because I was just trying to be funny, trying to make people laugh all the time. I used to make my mum laugh uh, as a kid growing up, and that was that was a joy, my real joy in my life was trying because she was suffered from bad depression. My mum, and uh, and my joy was literally just to make her laugh. And I remember once I was only about fifteen, and she was she'd had a bad time. And she was in a bit of a state, and I pretended. I said, "Look, Mum, you've got to cheer up because uh, Eamon Andrews is coming." So she went, "What are you talking about?" And Eamon Andrews used to do "This Is Your Life," as you probably remember, right? Yeah. And I said, "Eamon Andrews is coming around." She said, "What for?" She said, "They're going to do This Is Your Life," and she said, "What do you mean?" So I said, "Look, just put put some makeup on, get have a wash, get because Eamon Andrews is coming round." So anyway, she went and got changed, put some makeup on, had a wash around, came in, and she went, "What's happening then?" I said. This is your life on your mum. She said, oh, don't be stupid. Anyway, I'll go and get him now. Anyway, I went out, came back in, dressed as Eamon Andrews, and I pretended to be all the family for about an hour. And it was great. It cheered her right up. But she would have had a weak, as she got older, she had a weak bladder, right? And as I, when I got older as well, I'd go around to see her, and she would say, don't, don't you say a word. Don't say nothing yet. I said, why not? Uh, she was, I've got to put a newspaper under me. And she would wet, literally wet herself at me. She'd have such a loose... There was no tenor ladies in those days, right? And before I could say anything, because I, I, I'd literally go around there just try and make her laugh. And and I would. Uh, it was a great, great thing that I did for, for me personally and for her. But she couldn't cope with it. And she everywhere was just... It smelt a wee. The house smelt a wee, though. It was bad. <laughs> I mean, that takes me, actually, just jump straight into my next question, because... That was very much um, at the heart of what I wanted to talk to you about next. It's about kind of flipping the narrative, I suppose, and finding silver linings in some of the most difficult and challenging times in life. Like, for example, your mother's depression. That came as a result of a terrible car accident that she'd been in that left her with depression and epileptic fits. And you decided there and then that you were going to be a positive in her life. And that's how you ended up 
trying to make a laugh every day. So when else in life have you managed to find the good from a difficult or terrible situation? Oh, this is uh, this is an incredible story. This is I love this story, and it's 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 very sad, but it's also it's really it makes me laugh and it makes me smile. Um, my dad was a staunch Catholic. Very, my mum was Church of England, but so she wasn't uh, a church girl as such. But dad was, and I went to a Catholic school, and I remember being five and having to go to confession at five years old. Now imagine going to confess. What had I done at five years old? I had to confess, right? I was like, that, what have I done? What could I, what have I So I'd go in there and, I, and I'd say, I threw a stone at Vincent Garvey today, right? And I hadn't really. I'd go, oh, say two old Marys and how's your father? And that'd be it, right? So then a week later, I could go back and say I'd lied last week because I'd lied in the confession. It was a very weird, complex <laughs> thing that was going on with the Catholic Church in those days. And I was oh, convinced, I, oh, it's very weird. They, what they did, did you really, as a, as a five-year-old, have to go to confession? That's, that's yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, oh, yeah, I went to a Catholic school. So I was taught by nuns and priests um, up to the age of 11. And at that point, all they do is reinforce. They want you, you know, they want you on the team. And up to the age of 11, I wanted to be a priest, right? Uh, and then I got to senior school. I went to a comprehensive. Oh, oh no, sod there. I don't want to be a priest anymore. There's girls and stuff. What's that all about? <laughs> yeah. So uh, dismissed the priesthood completely. Anyway, my dad still, uh, after that, I never went to church at all. You know, and he didn't mind. He was okay about it, but he still went. And then um, towards the end of his life, he was still, he got physically, he became very ill. And, uh, well, as, as most people do when they're very old and they die. But he, he still went, he couldn't go to church at one point. So the priest used to come to his house and still give him Holy Communion. And invariably, I'd be there on a Sunday. Uh, and, he, and I'd say, look, Dad, I can't sit here and watch this. Do you mind if I go in your bedroom and watch a bit of telly? Yeah, yeah, you go in there. And he'd have like a little private mass in the living room. It was really lovely of the priest to come and do that for him. Anyway, it got worse and worse, physically worse and worse. And he was ill for so many times, uh, for about 10 years. And I remember once um, my sister phoned me and she went, Joe, you've got to get to the hospital. He's going to be gone by, it's about eight in the morning. They reckon he'd be no longer than, than about 12 o'clock, he'd be gone by lunchtime. Okay, so I'll get in the car, go straight to the hospital. And I'm there next to him, he was at death's door. I thought, oh God, he's going to go, he's going to go. And then I was there for a couple of hours. I went, Joe, I've got to get a bit of fresh air just for a little while. Julie's my sister, right? So I said, I said okay. So I went out and I stayed there for about half an hour. I thought, I'd better go in. Then my phone went. I went, I went oh God. And, and it was my dad's phone. And I thought, oh, no, he's gone. I, I, I've missed it. And um, and Julie said, oh, no, my dad went, where are you? And I went, I'm outside. He went, what are you doing out there? So I said, oh, um, I'm just getting a bit of fresh air. He said, well, on the way in, will you get me a sausage roll? So I said, what? He went, get me a sausage roll, will you? I said, you're supposed to be dead by 12 o'clock. And he went, no, 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 I'm not going to be dead. I feel a bit better now. Well, the hospital said, Julie said, that you're going to be dead by 12 o'clock. No, I'm starving. Get me a sandwich. They've not fed me. So, well, they've not fed you because they thought you were dying, you silly sod. And he went, well, I'm not dying. Just get me a sausage roll, will you? So I go back in, give him a sausage roll. He's got no teeth in, and he sucks on this sausage roll for an hour, right? And eventually they let him out the next day. I went, oh, bloody hell. So this went on for a few years where he was at death's door. Then he's not at death's door. He gets better. He kept going up and down, up and down for years and years and years. And I said goodbye to him so many times physically and in my head that this will probably be the last time I see him. And it never was until, until the day it was. And what happened was, uh, I think it was on the Friday, I got a chance to go to, to, um, to, uh, to Venice for a, a weekend uh, to work out there. So um, I said, Dad, I've got a chance to go to Venice this weekend. Do you mind if, um, if I go? He went, no, no, you go, 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 go. Great, you've got a chance to go to Venice. 
So I said, you'll be all right. And he said, yeah, yeah. And my sister was there as well. Julie was there. And uh, he said, you go. Have you got a chance? Go. He said, look. I said, you're going to be all right. He said, look, I'm not going to die before you come home. So I said, all right, as long as you're sure. I'm positive. You go. I'm not going to die before you go home. Okay. And it was Easter Sunday, right, coming up. And I don't know if you know this. Most people don't know this. But the name Pasquale means Easter. And in Italy, it's a Christian oh. name. But, yeah. My, my great-granddad's uh, name was uh, uh, Pasquale Isernia. And when he came to England, he couldn't speak English. And he put his surname where his Christian name should be on the immigration form. So his Christian name oh. became our surname. And it means Easter. So anyway, he said to me, I'll ask you one favour, though. So I said, what's that? He said, when you're over there, will you go to church on Sunday morning and have Holy Communion for me? So well, if that's what you want, Dad. He said, yeah, I'd love it if you did that. So I went, all right, fair enough then. I will. That's what I'll do. So anyway, I was over, over in Venice Sunday morning. I'd get up and go to this lovely, beautiful, ornate church in Venice. And it's Easter Sunday, so it's packed, you know, Catholics in Italy. And it's, it's, you know, Easter is a huge thing for Catholics, as you know. And it was absolutely ram-packed. It was like the Pope was going to be there himself. Anyway, because the name Pasquale means Easter... Every couple of minutes, the, the 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 sermon from the priest is all about Easter. So every five minutes, you go Pasquale, Pasquale. Now I don't speak Italian at all, but all I could hear was Pasquale, and he's like, I'm putting my hand up every time he said it, put it like this. And eventually, it got to the end of the end of the mass, and uh, I've like, I'll join the queue, and there must have been hundreds and hundreds of people there queuing up for the little bit of bread, right, for the little wafer. Uh, and it, it was like it was like a little bit of wafer, a little white wafer like that with a cross sign mm. the cross on it. And I queued up for it, and then he went and put it in, and then he did the sign the cross, gave it to me. And I came out, and I immediately phoned my dad, and my sister answered, uh, and she went. Julie answered. I went, "Hello, love, is he there?" And she went, "No, he's gone." I said, "Where's he gone?" So she went, "He's gone." I said, "Yeah, but where?" She said, "No, you're not listening to me. He's gone." She said, "You don't mean he's dead?" She said, "He's literally just gone." I said, "How long ago?" She said, five minutes ago." And I went, oh, for Christ's sake. She went, yeah, it is for his sake, because I was, literally, I was having Holy Communion, and that's when he went. And I'm convinced that he decided to go while I was away. And Julie says the same thing, that, um, yeah, he didn't want to be there. He didn't want me to be there when it, uh, when it was really happening. And then I lost my passport as well while I was over there, and I was in Italy, stuck in Italy. I had to make my way to Milan to get another passport, and I was stuck in Italy for 10 days. Uh, so she did all the hard work of sorting it all out afterwards. But, um, yeah. Wow. I mean, God, maybe he really was just waiting to get you into church, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I think he was. All those but years so... you'd excused yourself and gone into the other room. Oh, he, yeah. He, he, he decided to do the proverbial the same. Yeah, he did. And um, it was, so once again, it's not even said, it's just a, it was a very sad, sad time, sad, sad situation. Sounds like a song there, doesn't it? Um, but it was also quite, um, if it's going to happen, that's the best way for it to happen, that, that I was doing that for him. And, and, you know, it's just a weird situation. And it's all Easter Sunday and Pasquale and all of that, all in one. It's Pasquale, just, it's, Pasquale. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was quite a warm feeling at the same time, even though it was devastating as well. Yeah, that really is finding the silver lining, isn't it? Yeah. There was another yeah. time that you were forced to dig deep to do that. That involved you glue sniffing and Ken Dodd. Do you remember? Yeah, of course I remember that. I can't believe you. <laughs> so is that the story he was expecting me to tell, not a story about my dad? No, no, I just, <laughs> you know, it's just one that's stuck in my mind. And when you explain what happened, the listener will understand why it's oh, quite bizarre. Yeah. 
Well, this was on new faces then. This was on that, that heat that I was telling you about where I got everybody to send their postcards in. As I said, I didn't so like, have an like act. an important moment, Joe, yeah? Let's just set the scene oh. here. This isn't just like oh, yeah. any old gig. This is oh, no. the gig. This is the gig. And also in those days, right, there was only four channels. So New Faces was getting 18 million viewers. Can you believe anything getting 18 million viewers now? It did. God. 18 million viewers, right? Marty Kane was the host who was lovely. She was a wonderful lady. And and I I put this routine together. Um, I'll tell you what, what happened was that you do the routine in the afternoon, uh, and then all the judges watch it. That's what they do, uh, and then they could decide whether they're any, if you're any good, whether they like you, and they they write their little comments down. And then it's just a dress rehearsal in the afternoon, so it's not like Britain's Got Talent where they see it for the first time. These people actually saw it, and Ken Dodd was on my panel. And I went into makeup afterwards, and Ken said to me, "Oh, can I give you a bit of advice?" And I was like, "That? Oh my God, it's Ken Dodd!" I was in awe of him. Ken uh, can Dodd. I give you a bit of advice? Yeah. So I said, "Yeah, of course you can, Ken." And he put this bit of paper out, and he'd rewritten my whole act. He wrote down everything I said, and he said, "Right, this joke here. Get rid of that joke. It's too old. No one does that. Get rid of that one there. Put that one there." Move that one to the beginning because there's a strong one there, but you want to finish on that. When you pull the rabbit out of the hat, put it down your trousers, shake your leg, it'll come at the bottom, you get an extra laugh on that. If you do this and do all of the things I've just said to you, you'll win tonight. So I went, okay, and I, I did put all that into practice and I did win the heat. But previously to that, one of the, one of the routines I was doing on it was um, I, I had a, a handkerchief and I'd say, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a magician's handkerchief. And I put this handkerchief out and say, you can't cut it and I have plastic scissors, and I say, you can't saw it, and I have a little plastic saw, and you can't rip it, and I try and tear it, and it won't burn. And I'd set fire to it, and then it would start burning, and I'd drop it on the floor, and I'd stamp it out, and my, my shoe would go on fire. And I'd take my shoe off, and then I'd put my, I'd put my sock on it, I'd put my foot on it with the sock, and then my sock would go on fire, and I'd look, just stand there and watch it all burn. And I just looked up at the audience, and went, that obviously is not a magician's handkerchief. That was the gag, right? Anyway, to get all this to burn, I thought, how am I going to get this to burn? Because stuff isn't flammable anymore. Did you know the name, in, you know, the word inflammable and flammable mean the same thing? If something's inflammable, it's the same as flammable. It's ridiculous. Why is inflammable yeah, and flammable true. the same? Anyway, so that's beside the point. So, of course, I think, how can I set fire to all this stuff? So I got some of that glue that you use on, on tabletops, you know, to stick the, uh, the, the vinyl down. And it's, it's got so many fumes coming off it, and it's very flammable as well. So I covered my shoe and my sock in this stuff to make sure that, th that it would burn. Anyway, it worked. It worked perfectly in the rehearsal in the afternoon, right? Perfectly. And then so I've got the glue in my bag, go up to my dressing room, another five or six hours later before you do the live show. And, of course, I go up there, unbeknownst to me, the glue pot in my bag has completely uh, spilled out. They didn't put the top on properly. It's all over the show inside my bag with the bag open, but I didn't know this. And I sat in my dressing room. You're not allowed to leave the dressing room. Once you're in there, you're in there. And I sat in my dressing room for five hours, glue sniffing, right? I didn't know I was doing it, right? To say I was high, if someone came with a match, it would have gone up, right? It would have gone up like Oppenheimer if they'd come in, right? I kid you not, I sat there for five hours. I was off my tits completely. I didn't know what I was doing, right? Didn't have a nerve in my body, not a single nerve, right? I went out and, 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 and it was like I was just going down to Tesco's for me. Didn't have a nerve in my body and, and that changed everything as well. And I learned then, nerves don't really help you. Just get rid of them, get rid of the nerves. Yep. See, you managed to find the positive in glue sniffing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I really did. It was incredible, but I'd never we tried it since. We don't advocate glue sniffing. It's not big, no, it's not clever. It's not, it's not good either. No, it's, you, no <laughs> don't do it. Hold up. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You have lived a life, Joe. You really oh, no. have. I'm still living. You it. ready for your third and final question? I am indeed, lovely. You've discovered um, a love of sport and education late in life. You hated sport at school, and you left school before you'd even sat your exams, only to go on to become a gym-loving marathon runner in later life, sitting an open university degree as an adult. So. I wanted to know what took you so long and why sometimes it's important to go back and try something for a second time or just wait until the time is right. Well, this is, um, once again, it is about the time is right. And I don't think that kids should go to school when they're kids. Because no one wants to, you know, unless you're an exceptional gifted kid, um, you just want to play. And that's all I wanted to do was play. Uh, and you're not at your best uh, between five and fifteen, are you? Really? Uh, I know you're supposed to be your, your growing years, but that's not when you're at your best. I know it's not. It's not when I was at my best. I was a complete div. And uh, I broke my leg when I was thirteen. I got run over uh, quite badly. Um, not, not there's a good way of getting run over, but it was a bad break on my hip. And in the early seventies, they didn't have the technology available to mend things like they do today. And I was in plaster because I broke it on my hip. I was in plaster from my ankle right the way up to my chest here. And oh, so, Joe. Oh, yeah, it was terrible, really terrible break it was. For how long? Uh, uh, for about, uh, I was in, in traction for about six weeks, first of all, which is where they put the weights at the end of, you don't see that in hospitals anymore. They don't do that. Where no. They put a, put a pin through your leg and then they put wires on the end of it and then put weights on the end of it to pull it down. What the, what's that all about? Yeah, the only right? time I remember seeing that, is is in things like Carry On films. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, that's what they did to me, right? And then after they realised that wasn't going to work, so they just said, oh, stick a plaster on it. So my right leg is an inch shorter than my left leg. And I know this. there is there is a reason for me telling you all of this because it does, you know, go towards the learning thing, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And, and then they put me in plaster. For, and, and because it was only one side of my leg, uh, it, I only had one leg in plaster, right? but it went round my waist up to here. So my my willy was was at, wasn't plastered at all, right? But I couldn't get 
um, any pajamas on because my pajamas, because they were my size, I was only thirteen. I was only little at that age, and so I used to wear my dad's drawstring pajamas. I cut the legs off, and so they were a bit shorter for me. But so they were they're wide enough to get around my waist with a big drawstring. Couldn't wear any pants because I, I couldn't do it. And I had to use a bedpan as well because I couldn't bend over to sit on the toilet. So I was I was like that for about. Yeah, about three months, right? And I remember sure. being in the hospital, and I got to use crutches. It was great, right? I learned how to use crutches. And I would say, once I got really proficient with them, it was an all-shit hospital in Essex. It was all glass. It was one of these modern hospitals, glass everywhere. And I'd, I'd go and see my mum and dad off to the end of the ward, and then I'd run back on my crutches as quick as I could to the to the big window in my ward and wave at them in the car park. I'd see them in the car park. And, of course, I'm, I'm, the first time I'd done this, I'm going as quick as I can, really, really, really quick. I'm going back to try and get to the window before they get to their car. And I get there, and, and I'm waving at them, and then everybody else is leaving because it's the end of visiting time. Everybody else is going to their cars like that, and they're all looking up, and, and everybody's like, like that. And I can see everybody, a few people are laughing and pointing up at the window, and they're all doing that. And I think, what are they all pointing at, right? And then I can hear the people behind me, the other people in the beds behind me, all laughing. And I thought, what are they laughing at? And then I realised I couldn't feel it because I'd gone so fast on the crutches down the wall, the drawstring under my dad's pyjamas had loosened and I was standing at the window and my pyjama bottoms had gone to the floor. And I bear in mind I can't bend over to pick them up. I'm standing there, right, at the window with loads of people in the car park and my willy is out, right, one leg is great big fat plastered, a skinny leg on the other side with a little willy, right? And one bum cheek at the back. Everybody behind me can see one bum cheek, right? And, of course, they're all pointing. And I just stood there crying, right? And I, was, I didn't know what to do. And then a nurse came on and pulled my trousers up for me, and that was it. I was so embarrassed, right? And I think that embarrassment stayed with me. And I don't know why, but it, it gave me um, a sense of, of don't take life too seriously. That's what, and it still stays with me at that. So because of that break, I, I missed a year of school. And I went back to school afterwards. I'd missed that year where you do your options, you know. And I wanted to be a geologist. That's what I was going to do, geography and geology, and be a scientist, all those things. Of course, I ended up doing um, home economics and a bit of art. And I just, what they do, <laughs> just, just, just go to the art room, take some pencils and some crayons with you. And that's what I'd do for another three years at school. So I, by the end of it, I had no exams when I came out. And then um, after doing I'm a Celebrity, which was 20 years ago now, can you believe that was 20 years ago? Um, I came out of that and after um, doing a parachute jump and I was scared of flying I thought if I can jump out of planes I should be able to learn to fly don't ask me why I did that because I was scared of flying so I went and got my pilot's licence and as a byproduct of that I had to pass seven exams and I hadn't done the exams since I was 15 I failed them all so, uh, and I passed all of them for my flying and I thought if I can pass exams like that surely I could do Geology, which is what I wanted to study when I was at school. So I did a, a, a courses with the Open University on geology and I, and I passed all of those and it was fantastic. Um, and as a byproduct of that, I thought, I've never done any exercise really. I should uh, do some exercise. I've never had a fight in my life. So I took up boxing. And as a byproduct of that, I started running. And then I thought, I've never done a marathon. So I did a marathon. And as you said, it's when the timing is right, it's when you're in the right place. Uh, in your head, really, to be able to do those things. And I realised, after mum went, uh, I realised my your own, your own mortality, we're not here forever. And I thought, if I don't do these things now, um, I'm never going to do them. The thing is with flying, I love flying, but nobody comes with me. Nobody will ever come with me because they won't even sit on the same settee as me. You imagine, you know, because I'm quite accident prone. <laughs> uh, but uh, I love flying, and same as I love exercise now, 
And one of the joys that I've ever... Because yeah, you've, you've run marathons, Joe. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not for the faint-hearted. No, and it's not. When I, go- when I Google you, um, there's pictures of you all ripped, right? All ripped yeah. online yeah. with yeah. women like properly fangirling over you going, oh my God, what a dilf. <laughs> You're a dilf. Don't think I'm, yeah. I'm a div. No, I'm just a div. That's what I am. I'm not a div. <laughs> Seriously, Joe, I mean, you've seen it, right? You're a meme. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're a you're a fit 50, well, 60-something now. 62, So how old yeah. were you when, you've, when you first saw an ab? Oh, well, I suppose it was about 15 years ago I took up boxing. Uh, but what what happened was, I was, um, uh, I was still eating a lot of wine gums in those days. So it wasn't until I did... Um, the uh, what's it called? The, full, the real full Monty for ITV, you know, where they um, it was a great thing to do. That was, and I thought if I'm going to go on telling, because I was boxing all the time and running, and I got I was very fit. Uh, I'm still reasonably fit now, in actual fact, which is why I managed to you know miss the moose head the other day. But um, <laughs> I thought if I'm going to go on telling now and get stark naked, this was a thing for prostate cancer. I don't remember that they used to do it every yeah. year with Ashley Banjo with with front it all uh, with along with Alexander yeah. Armstrong. So at the end of it, you'd do this routine that Ashley would choreograph, and at the end, you'd literally strip naked to leave your hat on. That was the song. And it was done in front of a live audience and televised, all that. And I thought, if I'm going to get my winkle out again that hasn't been out in the public since when I was 13 at the hospital, then I want to look as, as cut as I can be. So I went, I was back to still at the boxing gym, and I went like, put me on a proper diet, let me know what I've got to do. So I did all the stuff. I got to the point where I went, oh, this is pretty good. This is. It was like Brad Pitt in Fight Club almost. That's what I wanted to achieve. So um, I've got to that point. And then, then, of course, you do the show with Ashley and you do it, and it's great. Uh, and the, you don't see a lot in it because they use these blinders, what they call blinders, huge you know, bright lights when you take everything off. Uh, but once the blinders have gone off, you don't see it on television. You don't see anybody's Willie on telly. But in the in the theatre where you're doing it, of course, the light, the blinders go off and you're left on stage with 2,000 people looking at 10 blokes with their willies out, right? One of whom and is Ashley Banjo. Good luck to the rest of, of you. Well, absolutely, absolutely, right? And that was one of the things. Well, if I'm going to be standing here against Ashley Banjo, right, next to him, uh, and with nothing on, I want to look as good as I can. So that's what happens, right? But then, then what happens, once you've done it, it's so exhilarating to be naked in front of those many people and be allowed to do it where it's not illegal, right? That's the thing, right? Yeah. And there's, right? there is that joke. <laughs> yeah, there is that to it. And it was legally done. It was televised. I had a contract that I was allowed to do it. So um, at the end of it, Ashley Banjo is, is, um, uh, and there's uh, Alexander Armstrong at the end. Everybody's so elated. And I've run over to, and, and Ashley's done it like two or three years before end, and so has Alexander, but they're still just as elated and so excited and buzzing. And I run over to, um, I run over to, uh, to Alex, Alexander, and we have a little hug, right? Bear in mind, we're naked, right? We're naked, but it doesn't matter, it's fine. And then Ashley joins in, he's naked, there's three of us. And then there's about another 15, 20 blokes all come on, that all, that all um, come on, all naked, right? And it's almost like you're doing the okie-cokie with 15 naked blokes, and but they're not, but not separate. You're all closed up like in a huddle, like in a scrum in rugby, and all you can feel is all these willies on your leg going, oh, oh, no, no get off me, get off me, and I had to run away from it. It was terrible. I hated it. I loved it up to that point. Yeah. Not good. Oh. 
Good incentive, though. And also, like, brilliant examples, Joe. Like, it is never too late, is it, to really push yourself to become somebody other than who yeah. you know yourself to be. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Well, I think we all know who ourselves to be, but I think we are, we're all comedians trying to fit in to what other people's boxes are. We try to go, well, they, that's what I think of it. And what I've learned as well over the years, and you can only learn this through, through getting older, is I used to go into a room and think, oh, what do they all think of me? And, yeah, what, 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 when I'm doing a show, what do they think of me? And then as you get older, it's not that you don't care what they think of you. You realise that everybody in that room is thinking the same thing. They will think, what does he think of me? And once you can apply that to your own self, go, you, you become self, you become, become less self-aware of it and you, be, you become an observer, observer of the situation rather than a participant in it, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, and you can only do that as you get older through life experience and you, and you realise that you can only do the best you can and just be yourself. And it's hard to be yourself though. But that's the best thing in stand-up is it only really works when you're being yourself. That you have to be yourself because otherwise yeah. an audience will see But then it. you go and become somebody else with another string to the bow that you've, um, well, you've, you've come to in recent years. You've become an author. You're writing uh, horror yes. fiction and you yes. love the genre, don't you? You love being ah, scared. Love it. Well, this comes back from when I got run over because I couldn't go to bed because uh, I couldn't go up the stairs to bump my bed because I was in these crutches on the, in this heavy plaster. And my mum never trusted me not to go up there in case I fell down. There's nothing I could do because I was accident prone anyway. And she had all these porcelain dolls with glass eyes. She had a big collection, about 40 of them, all around every room. Everyone was covered in these bloody things. And uh, my mum and and dad got to bed and my brother and my sisters would go to bed early. And I'd be left up on the settee because I couldn't go to bed. Uh, And the telly was on. And every night, invariably, there'd be some horror film on. Normally the old Hammer films from the 60s or 70s. And yeah, they'd be they on. were. That was always your late-night screening, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Nearly every night something would be on. And I became immune to being scared. And also these dolls, I'd, I'd look away and I'd think, that one's eyes moved at me and, and, and I became obsessed with these bloody dolls. And my mum even said to me that one of them's possessed. That's a good thing to tell your 13-year-old kid, isn't it? But she did. Uh, and then... Sleep tight. Yeah, it was that. It was. Oh God, was yeah. that a bedside manner? It was. Like, it was. It was like doll. It was like living in The Shining. That's what it was like, right? <laughs> and then I started reading a lot of horror books as well. And Dracula was one of my favourite books as a kid. And in it, Bram Stoker wrote that Dracula bought, uh, came to Whitby on a ship called the Demeter. Then he drove to London on his horse and car and blah blah blah. And he bought a house in London. Well, the actual fact in, that's, that's what they portray in the movies. But in the actual book. He said that he bought a place, uh, a bought a house in a place called Perfleet, which is just adjacent to where I lived in Grays, uh, and it's um, it's still there. No, Perfleet's still there, but he bought a place in the book called the Carfax Estate, and it, which, which was an actual estate in the early part of the 20th century, and it was an insane asylum, and that's what Dracula bought. Uh, but it was based on a real place in in Perfleet, and so when my leg got better, I went and tracked down this Carfax Estate. And by then, in the in the 70s, it was near a council estate. But it was still, you know, it was uh, in the book. So and I went around people's houses, knocking on the door, asking if they'd seen Dracula. And they all thought I was off my head, right? And ever since then, I've been in the search for vampires. I think vampires are out there somewhere. Anyway, that's another, that's, a, that's beside the point. So I actually think that, that in, our, in our genealogy, in our, in our uh, genes, in, in the human race, in the human species, a couple of thousand years ago, we were being chased by animals, you know, like 150,000 years ago, be saber-toothed tigers or whatever was coming after us. And so that fear is in us. But now in the 21st century, our lives are so 
um, so much safer. The only the only things we have to fear are other humans, right? That's what you have to fear. Everything else is harmless to us now. So we have that gene in us that's, that's, that should be scared, that wants to be woken up and be scared because it's still in us, which is why there are roller coasters out there. Why do you want to get on a world's biggest roller coaster and yeah. you want to be scared? Why do you want to watch the worst film or like jump out of a plane? Yeah, why do you want to do it? Because you've got that something in you wants to be scared. And that's what I love about writing horror is I like to scare people because people think, oh, Joe Pasquale, he's written a book. I bet it's a kid's book. No, it's proper get your hands dirty, give you the willies at midnight with bad swearing and bad, oh, it's bad stuff. It's really Stephen King time for me and I love it. When did you pitch to the publishers? Um, no, the, the books, or did they come to you? No. What happened was I was doing the degree with the Open University, and as a byproduct of doing some of the uh, the geology courses I was doing, I also did creative writing and advanced creative writing. And a friend of mine called Colin Edmonds, I give him a name check, who used to be Bob Monkhouse's writer and Des O'Connor's writer and blah blah all these. And as these uh, uh, big names were, were you know, retiring and, and actually dying and uh, you know going away to the other side, Colin's work uh, diminished a little bit because he was writing for these for these big names. And when they stopped doing it, he was like, "What do I do?" And he started writing steampunk novels, and he's a, a hugely successful steampunk novelist now. And so what I would do, I would write my, my stories, my creative writing, and before I would send them to my tutor, I would send them to Colin and say, Colin, can you have a look over this story for me and just help me with my grammar because I was terrible at grammar at that point. So I was just, you know, tell me where I should put this, you know, where to put this comma, what's, what do I do here, is that too long, do I start the sentence with a but or not, and all these sort of things. And he would correct them for me, I'd send them in, I'd get a better mark because of Colin's help on it. And then unbeknownst to me, all these stories that I was sending to Colin he sent to his publisher and said, look, you should look at these stories. And out of the blue, one day I get a phone call from this publisher saying, um, Mr. Jeff Pascual, I said, yeah, um, uh, Colin Edmonds has uh, been sending me some of your stories. How many have you got? I said, well, I've only got, uh, got about 10. He said, if you can do 13, I'll publish them. He said, well, as good as this. And that was it. It was just a, a, a thing that, that rolled away from me. Wow. Really. Yeah. How lovely great. is that, Joe? What a nice yeah. thing for him to do. Because he's, yeah. in in the circles of television writers, he's a bit of a don, isn't he? He's he's one of the yeah. big guys. One of the yeah, big guys. Colin, yeah, he is. And, he, and I first worked with him um, with um, when I was doing a Des O'Connor show 30-odd years ago. And, and Colin used to be in, in Des's room writing for him all those days. And I'd go in I'd, I'd, uh, and tell him what my material was going to be and they'd rewrite it for me where it was suitable for Des and all that sort of stuff. And it was... Uh, it's it's just a, a genius to be able to write like that, you know, for other comics. Um, and you could just give him mm. a subject, and he'd write that, I'll give you six jokes for that. And between him and Bob Monkhouse, um, that was uh, that was amazing with Bob as well. Wow. What a 40 years you've had, Joe, in this business. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Good luck with the next 40 or however many you manage to squeeze out of it. Thank you. Been really lovely talking to you today, Joe, and good luck with the tour. Uh, you're on the road now until October? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes, please come. Get those tall legs up and running. And if anybody does want to explore your horror fiction, uh, yes. what are the books called and where can they find them? The first two is called Dead Knobs and Doomsticks 1, and the second one is called Dead Knobs and Doomsticks 2, Towers of the Lockdown, because I wrote that one during lockdown. And then the latest one is called Of Mice and Wolfmen. And they're short story, horror stories. They're only about 10, 15 minutes long at each story. So if you're a bit constipated and you can't go, take the book with you. In one sitting, I'll guarantee you'll go. 
like uh, like literary prunes. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yes, yes. You can have that for the next sleeve. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Thank you. Joe, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed your company. So I've enjoyed yours immensely. Thanks, Kate. It's lovely to see you again. If you've enjoyed listening in on Joe, why not head over to the back catalogue where you'll find more jungle conversations with kings and queens of ITV's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. We've got the legend, Mylene Class, Scarlett Moffat, Georgia Toffolo, Phil Tufnell, Sean Ryder, Nick Knowles and Charlene White to name but a few. I'll be back on Tuesday with another chance for you to rediscover some vintage guests in our Something from the Cellar mini-eps. And next Friday, I'll be back with you and a brand new guest. Until then, thanks so much for listening. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.